0: Welcome to the Super Fantastic Nerd Hour. It's bonus episode number one, the best of San Diego Comic-Con panels. This is Ali Matu, and uh, this week I am going solo on this episode. Uh, H.A. Conrad is on assignment um, doing some Guardians of the Galaxy (laughs) stuff. And uh, we thought it would be fun to be able to bring you uh, just a little bit more than we did on our episode 28 On episode 28, we did talk about the biggest news coming out of San Diego Comic-Con, but we also wanted to share with you some details about smaller panels that usually don't make it out into the news. So fortunately, I was able to record some of uh, my favorite panels that I was able to attend last week at San Diego Comic-Con. We are going to make full downloads of each of these panels available on our website. So if you like what you hear on this episode... Go to the website, um, check out the show notes. We've got the full panel downloads available for you right there. At the end of this episode, I've also got an interview with uh, two very good friends of mine, Alex and Justin, who are two uber geeks uh, who live in San Diego, and we talked about what is the experience like to have Comic-Con going on in your backyard. So that's a great interview. Stay tuned for that. We also wanted to make a correction. Um, in the previous episode, we talked about how um, safe and uh, friendly and um, how there were really no episodes of any violence um, at San Diego Comic Con. Well, before we, um, at the time of that recording, that was true. Um, right after we recorded that episode, there was news that came out about a young 17 year old woman who experienced some significant head injuries um, outside Comic-Con um, over the weekend. And uh, we our, our thoughts go out to the family of this woman. Um, we'll put a link into one of the stories, um, and we, we hope that she does have a uh, speedy recovery. I also want to say that there is variable quality in the audio recordings of these panels. Uh so I apologize for that that really just came down to where I was able to grab a seat in the different rooms. Um I also want to point out something you're going to notice in these panels is there <laughs> there's a lack of diversity here. Most of the panelists do um uh, do tend to be men and this is One of the problems we've noticed at San Diego Comic-Con, while the attendees, there's a lot of diversity in regards to who comes to San Diego Comic-Con, the panelists are still majority male, and that is a problem not only with San Diego, but with many of the Comic-Cons. So um, hopefully that is something that raising some awareness about, we'll we'll get some change there. Um, Last but not least, I want to apologize for missing some of the interviews ...that are recorded at San Diego Comic-Con. So, uh, in particular, uh, I want to apologize to Alan Irwin of the Um We had a fantastic interview. Um, he is a, um, a big supporter of the Super Fantastic Nerd Hour. And we ended up chatting right before a panel. Um, and I didn't hit the record button. So, major nerd foul <laughs> there. So, I'm sorry about that, Alan. We're going to have to get you on the show uh probably for one of our anniversary episodes and we'll uh we'll chat with you then i also want to apologize to lee and dylan from stupid buddy studios i had a fantastic interview with them as well about what it takes to create robot chicken and i didn't press the record button so um good thing is i learned my lesson here hopefully we won't have these same problems at new york comic con all right folks with that let's go ahead and get started so the first panel i have for you is the psychology of cult tv this was a panel that i was invited to be a part of and it was uh... created by dr janita scarlett from the Superhero Manual, Dr. Travis Langley, who has written Batman and Psychology, Dark and Stormy Night, as well as Billy San Juan, who is a graduate student in clinical psychology, um, who just defended his dissertation. So congratulations on that, Billy, um, and welcome to the club. So this panel was really about one question. How can TV be healing? There's been a lot of talk about the problems of TV, and this panel really looked at the other side of that equation. Uh, the the full panel really has a discussion about what's the value of TV, how can TV shows be healing, what does TV teach us, but I wanted to share with you uh, the last part of the panel, which is about um, this panel of psychologists sharing their personal and professional experiences um, with TV shows that had a, had some type of impact on them. Um, it's a great panel. Do check out, if you like this clip, do check out the whole panel on our website. Before we go to Q&A, I was actually
1: hoping that we could share uh, maybe a personal or a professional example about when we might have been able to incorporate TV shows.
2: In what way?
3: Well, so...
4: <laughs>
2: that sound brings hope.
4: <laughs>
0: Is it August 23rd already, or whatever?
3: <laughs> okay, uh, so I grew up... Well, how many people here watch Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, or watch it? Yeah. How many of you guys can start singing the theme song? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who remembers the episode where Will finally meets his father? Yeah, that was a pretty tough one, right? Now, I grew up without a father. And it was always one of, this is a personal example. Obviously, I didn't give therapy to myself. If I do, I cut my rate for that. Um, We we can do that? Don't tell me that I'm doing that to me. (laughs) But I, I watched that episode and it helped me understand that okay this is this is will you know this is will this is the character will smith and he's funny and he's charming and he gets into weird situations but he was also raw and he was emotional and he allowed himself to mourn hmm. and he also realized that he had family and he had father figures and that was a real turning point when i watched that that episode where i thought i may not have biological father there to teach me the lessons that you would see in, say, Full House or Family Matters. It was a non-traditional family, but it was a family. And that was a really deep emotional turning point for me. Mm. Um. Thanks for applauding my childhood. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I, um... Let's see. I'm going to share an example from my own therapy. So this was um, 2009. Um, I've been working with this therapist for a long time. And I'm I'm a big believer in you can't sit in that seat until you've sat in the other seat. And um, any good therapist needs to experience what that's like. But uh, that's not why I went in for therapy. I went in for other reasons. Uh, (laughs) Apparently I was a bad friend. Long story. So... um, It was a time in my life where I was going through a huge transition. I was going to be moving out of D.C. where I had lived with my best friend from childhood for five years. We really, I I felt very comfortable, I felt very safe, and I was going to be moving to New York City, a very different place. My dissertation had failed. Um, Don't tell me that. Well, no, 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 no. (laughs) Prior to the defense, this was way before. (laughs) You're fine. Um... (laughs) Um, my dissertation was more like the Hobbit trilogy. Yours is going to be more like the Lord of the Rings. It's a, a subtle little jab there. Uh, yeah. Alright, anyways, <laughs> back to this. So I was going through this, I had massive anxiety about this change, and um, I felt like I was going to be completely alone so my therapist, he was a big Lost fan any Lost fans in the audience? <laughs> any Lost fans before the final season? <laughs> <laughs> the um, and he was a big Lost fan I was a big Lost fan and he like, do you remember that episode with Desmond leaping through time? and I was like yeah I love that episode it's a lot of, like all good things, the last episode of TNG and he goes yeah they ripped it off but it's a cool <laughs> show and this is the kind of cool guy he was and he's like do you remember the, the, the whole, how we got out of that situation? He's like, well, he had, to, he had to find his constant. He had to find Penny and be able to connect with Penny. He's like, who's your constant? Who's gonna help you through this time and this change? And it made me realize that no matter how much anxiety or uncertainty I had about the future, there was someone I could find that I loved who could help me through that. Completely changed the way I think about it. Um, it was one of those moments that just sticks with you for a long time. Yeah.
2: My, my number one story that comes to my, my head is actually too personal. It has to do with other people. I can see somebody blogging. He said this up to relate to his dad. Um, that's, uh, so I'll go for one that's a little, gosh, not as good as their stories. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, it was a grandfather that I, I just would know, have trouble finding a way to relate and connect. And then be there, just something as simple as, there's a TV show, we're both watching it, it was old Western, it was Maverick, uh, with, with James Garner. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I don't know
2: what that response was. Ma- <laughs> he, he, he just died. Yeah. Awesome. And Maverick is a legend. <laughs> Maverick is a legend of the West. Uh, uh, but but this, this, this fun character, like, like, they were so different in so many ways. And even as we got older, it was more, it's like, okay, he's in one direction politically, and I am sure, not that direction. And you guess whichever way it goes. Um, and, but but we can still relate to the TV show. We could talk about them and get excited about these conversations. Even years later, oh, there's that old Western. usually used uh, <laughs> to be Maverick still. And it's, I could have these conversations. It would be the safe zone. We wouldn't veer into, is him referring to politics that would great on me? Or... Some of the racist stuff that you'd say sometimes. Okay, we can go there, <laughs> and we're not going there. We can comfortably converse, and that made it easier to have other conversations.
1: Yeah. For me, um, I was 12 when my family.
5: You to that mic. <laughs>
3: I really hope you guys rehearsed that.
5: <laughs> but I actually think you taught me a lot more than that.
1: Um, Steve was always picked on for being different mm-hmm. and, you know, for, for loving Laura and for being so persistent. And yet, at the end, the message to me, at least the one that I took away from it, was be yourself and follow your heart no matter what. And that message really got me through some really, really hard times and allowed me to um allowed me to relate and allowed me to kind of adapt to the American culture better. Um, so that was that show was very, very helpful
0: to me. Next up for you is digging ET behind the scenes of the Xbox original documentary Atari Game Over. Now, some of you might be familiar with the story that surfaced last year about a company finding all <laughs> the rumored and mysterious buried Atari ET cartridges. As the myth goes, Atari made what was what's become known as the worst video game of all time. Um, the, this ET adaptation. It was so bad and so horrible, Atari had to recall all the units and then bury them in a dumpster and um, pretend like the situation never happened. So these cartridges were actually found last year, and a documentary was made um, as a result. So, in this panel, you will actually hear mostly from three individuals, Uh, Atari founder Nolan Bushnell, original Atari video game designer Howard Scott Warshaw, he's the guy who made this game as well as a few good games including uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you're also going to hear from Larry Hyrub, who is uh, the moderator um, and he's from Xbox Major Nelson. So, uh, great panel. This segment really focuses on the development of the E.T. game and why it was so bad. It's a fascinating story, and the full panel also goes into the story of the dig and how the game was found. Once again, check it out on our website if you are interested. Here we go.
6: All right, I want to, we want to get into the actual game development right now and then the burial. Howard, tell us, I mean, you've talked about it a little bit um, publicly, but I want to talk about the development of the E.T game itself, the top the unbelievable timeline, your interaction with Steven Spielberg and then kind of the,
5: the life cycle of it.
7: <laughs> and so goes, can you do it? I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah, I can do that. Because I knew I needed to do it. And I think we do a pretty, my understanding is there's a whole coverage of this in the movie tonight. It's a, it was a very intense five weeks. It was a very intense five weeks. And so I worked and I worked. And that was, uh, but it was probably the most intense five weeks of my life, I probably said.
6: And uh, but I want to, real quick, I mean, nowadays we're dealing with you know studios that have 100 uh, person development, like you talked about Call of Duty or maybe 200. Okay. Let's talk about you let's were not the not designer, in the, yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, so <laughs> ET
7: had a programmer, had a game designer. Was, it, was, was that there? normal back in the day? <laughs> uh, Nolan <one> says yes. <laughs> normal is a very interesting concept in and topic. <laughs> okay, it was normal for a, a game to have one programmer. It was also normal for that programmer to have six to eight months to do the game. So doing this in five weeks was pretty intense. Yeah, pretty intense. So. Now, when
8: Here's the quote.
4: <laughs> <laughs> All right, well,
6: Zach, I want to talk about, we're going to get to some of the other things in just a moment, but the, the game's impact on the video game industry that you uncovered as you were starting to research the story here.
9: Well, actually, you know, one thing that I really don't, it really is at the heart of the movie is, you know, one of the things that really interested me was how this legend, you know, there's a whole legend which is, ET was made, it came out, it destroyed the video game industry for three years. It did it was so bad. It did so badly that the whole video game industry, including you know, Atari was the video game industry, collapsed for a number of years until it finally bounced back. And it was so bad that Atari buried it. I mean, that's the legend that people tell. And the movie is kind of a systematic deconstruction of that legend. Uh, so I don't want to get. Into much detail, but what I'd say is none of that is accurate. I mean, there's an element of truth of each of those parts, but it's all jumbled up. Um, And and one of the big discoveries for me was figuring out, oh, wait, how is this burial related to what happened with the returns of E.T., and how is that related to what happened with Atari? How did it turn into this crazy urban legend? Right. That really became the story of the movie,
8: was figuring out what actually happened.
6: But one of the things that really did happen is this had quite an impact on your life, Howard, didn't it? Can you tell tell us what happened after you, you know, kind of your exit from the industry, as it were?
7: Well, I didn't leave because of these. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, I had done Yara's Revenge, and I had done Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I was doing pretty well, I thought. I really was very happy as a, as a game maker, and then the ET Challenge came up, but it was a different kind of getting it done with them. And I did what I could. It was an amazing intense effort. But by the same token I always realized that players it doesn't matter what went into making the game, it's what comes out on their screen and that's what they're gonna respond to. But people weren't that happy with the game, it turned out. And as time went on i hear more and more of that. So that was kind of intense, but uh and we'll discuss a lot of this in the film, but it's uh My my take on it is very different from what most people's take on it, because my experience of doing E.T. and what happened with it are very different. For me, there was five just ridiculously intense weeks of putting everything of myself into this product, and then there was this stuff that went on in papers and magazines and stuff like this about people talking about it here and there, and I was busy working on another game at that point with not quite the same focus. So it was a very—it was a little more arm's length, but then again, this kind of talk has gone on for three decades. And, you know this kind of stuff. So it's interesting to hear that over time. But I, to sum it up, i am proud to have done the worst video game of all
4: time. And <laughs> uh, I want to
6: go down to the end of Jonathan and Simon from Lightbox. You guys are the executive producers. Tell us about what, how you guys got involved and, and talk about this, the legend that we just spoke of. and You're like, wow, this is a great idea.
10: Um, yeah, well, we uh, we were talking to Xbox uh, Studios about doing uh, a series of films about the digital revolution. Um, and they actually pitched us, Simon and I, the idea of, of this film. And neither of us are really gamers. Uh, I know that's probably not the right thing. First reaction was it, it felt like quite a niche story and, and we had to sort of go back and do some research and and, and and dig into it. But but shortly after doing that, I think you know we came upon Howard and, and, and Nolan and, and we started to put the pieces together in our heads about about what an important story this actually is and what it says about technology and the digital revolution. And and I think after a little bit of time we we really saw how this could, could fit into the, the series that, 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 that we were doing. So, um, you know, the legend itself, um, you know, t- our research showed it popped up in, in popular culture a lot, and it was one of those things that I just didn't know about, but you know, you know, when you sort of hear something and then th- that everybody knows except you, and then you find out and then you see it everywhere. It was one of those things. It was just sort of once I'd heard the story, it seemed that wherever I looked, somebody was talking about it, and even a little research sort of showed that this was a story that had sort of gone on for, for 30 years. So f- from a filmmaking standpoint, a narrative standpoint, I mean, the idea of an unsolved legend um, that had survived for 30 years, I think, was was quite appealing. Um, so uh, we signed up to do it, here we are. <laughs>
6: Nolan, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, why do you think the games would have been fair? First of all, talk about your role at Atari and and and, and kind of set the table for us there.
8: Well, I. And just couldn't get the math to work, and so we decided we needed a corporate partner. And the partner turned out to be Warner, and they wanted to buy the whole company. And, uh, you know, between a rock and a hard place, I decided okay, let's do it. And uh, what we, you know, the, the sales.
6: These games were sent out to the desert.
8: So the, the amount of money they spent for the license drove the number of cartridges they had to sell, and so instead of looking at market demand, it was it was market push right. Right, based on the deal they cut, and since they were on.
11: We could have used another forty-eight
8: hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, and, and that was that was kind of uh, the way I, I saw it. Right.
0: Five weeks this is Max Brooks's Zombies vs. Vampires, the Extinction, Extinction Parade Survival Panel. Now, as many of you will probably know about Max Brooks as the author of the Zombie Survival Guide as well as World War Z. Um, this panel was really supposed to be about um, an, one of his major new projects, which is a comic out of Avatar Press called The Extinction Parade. However, he wanted to spend the first 10, 15 minutes or so talking about World War Z, the movie. Those of you who know and those of you who are fans of Conrad's uh, uh, reanimated podcast, um, World War Z was a, a very loose adaptation of Max Brooks's beloved novel um, World War Z. And it really in name only was uh, it an adaptation Max Brooks does a fantastic job talking about the process of how that film got made in, a, in an honest way and what his reactions were as an author who was seeing his work um, really disregarded. It's a refreshingly honest interview It is uh, or panel. It is hilarious. It's funny. Um, and I really hope you enjoy this one.
12: Before we talk about the Extinction Parade, before we talk about the Harlem Hellfighters, let us talk briefly about a
4: movie <laughs> yeah.
12: that happened to have the
4: same title <laughs> as a book I once wrote. <laughs> All right.
12: All right, let's, let's do this quickly. Okay, we're going to go quick. Uh, many years ago, write a book, World War Z, if you're Canadian, World War Z.
4: Okay, um, Hollywood comes. Wow, we'd love to destroy,
12: I mean we'd love to make um, a movie based on your book. I say, okay, give it a shot. Six years later, a movie comes out. Now, let me start by saying that uh, the reason I've never slammed the movie and never will because when you make a conscious deal with the de- Hollywood, <laughs> uh, you have no right to complain, okay? You know who has a right to complain about Hollywood? Alan Moore, because Alan Moore, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, yes, you know that Alan Moore doesn't own the rights to those comics, that they make a movie, all right? So what happens is, like here's how Watchmen got made, okay? This is exactly, this is, I have this on good authority. Hello, is this Alan Moore? Yeah, yeah, this is the Alan Moore, who was who a genius and brought comics to a new level and made it an actual art form, and whose watchman is now in the Library of Congress. Yes, this is DC slash Hollywood, and you can suck it.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
12: and that's pretty much what happened. Now, Alan had no say in that, so he can use this wonderful British profanity that they're so famous for and slam them. I can't do that, because I made a conscious choice, I won't put a gun to my head, so... I just say, okay, That's I have to be a grown-up about these things. Fine. Then the trailer came out. <laughs> let me let me backtrack by saying, those of you who don't know uh, World War Z, that's totally cool. I won't hold it against you. I'll just tell you what it was. Uh, it, I wanted to write a zombie book that was not your typical uh, small-person adventure story, but some sort of alpha male hero who saved the world with a miracle (laughs) cure. Then the trailer came (laughs) out. Now, let me backtrack and also say, look, I get a lot of questions. Uh, People come and say, you know, uh, what advice would you have for for writers? Uh, Well, Advice number one is write. Uh, don't aspire, just write. I don't, I don't believe there's no aspiring writers. You could be an aspiring doctor or submarine commander, uh, <laughs> but you, no excuse to be an aspiring writer. Just freaking write. Uh, but I also give advice, make sure that you marry the right person, okay? Because when you go into the art world, it will eat you alive. Because the truth is, people say you shouldn't let things like, get to you. Well, if I didn't let things get to me, I wouldn't be an artist, all right? I wouldn't be a writer. I would be on Wall Street, you know, destroying the fabric of the American middle class. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course you're going to let things get to you. Of course you are. You're a writer. That is why most writers have either drowned in alcohols or suffocated themselves with mountains of cocaine. Because we're sensitive. That's how we are. Now, the alternative to that is you marry the right person who is your wingman, who is with you and knows you better than you know yourself. So, trailer comes out. Wow. Uh, and my wife says, look, call Frank Darabont. Now, you guys may not know this. Frank Darabont is a recent friend of mine. Uh, those of you who have never heard the name Frank Darabont, have you heard of called Walking Dead? All right. Yay. You've got a bag right there. Uh, let me tell you a little about Walking Dead. Okay, it it started out as this indie comic, which was an awesome indie comic, but let's all take a step back and realize that as comic book people, we're not the mainstream, okay? We're like the tea party. We're this fringe (laughs) that we for the mainstream, okay? Well, this indie comic comes out. It's great. It's awesome, but it's not mainstream. You know, housewives and regular folks with jobs and lives don't know about Walking Dead. Then this gentleman named Frank Darabont, who gave us a movie called The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile, and The Mist, and pretty much everything that's awesome, <laughs> said, I'm going to make a TV show. AMC is like, yeah, yeah make no TV. you zombies? Are you crazy? No. And he says, no, 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 I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm going to take my cast that I always work with, my writing staff I always work with, my production crew, which will save you money and time and works like a well-oiled machine, and I'm going to do it. Trust me. And so AMC is like, all right, trust him, trust him. Does anyone remember how AMC promoted the TV show, Walking Dead, before it actually came out?
11: Do you remember
12: their tagline? Trust us. That's literally what they said. Go online and Google it. You guys all know Google, okay? You know YouTube, or whatever. It literally said, from the network that brought you Mad Men. (laughs) From the director that brought you Shawshank.
4: Trust us.
12: (laughs) It comes out, and it becomes a national sensation. Okay? Now, how do you reward this man for believing in this comic book? If it were up to me, I would give him a statue on the Mall in Washington, D.C., next to Martin Luther King. All right, there'd be Dr. King, and then there'd be Frank. AMC rewarded him by firing him. Yes, that's what they did because I don't know why, maybe they didn't want like a creator arguing for whatever. For whatever reason, they fired him. So the point is, Frank knows what it's like to get screwed. And by the way, if there's a Walking Dead panel here, please bring that up. <laughs> and, I, and let's do a, a biological experiment because called How Much Can We Make an AMC Executive Sweat? <laughs> so I called Frank, I emailed Frank, and I said, hey buddy, I, I was in the trailer and Brad Pitt makes pancakes? So, Frankie emails me back. And he's so cool. He goes, Look, buddy, take it from a screenwriter. Okay? A screenwriter screenwriter who's had his work changed a lot. You have your book. Okay? And no one's ever messed with it, and no one ever will. Your book is pure, your book is you, and it's your side of the story. So, no matter what that movie is, you will always have your book. And I thought, even cooler. He then passed my email on to a friend of his, who then wrote him back and said, hey, tell your friend Max two things. Number one, I read World War Z and I liked it. And number two, tell him no matter what happens with the movie, people will hear about his book and people will read his book, and that's why we got into this. So people would read our books. All the best, Stephen King.
4: (laughs) You. <laughs> <laughs> and, you go and, and here comes the director Mark Forrest. I'd love to thank
12: you all for coming, and I'm for I would love to thank Maxwell for writing this wonderful book. <laughs> <laughs> and then the credits roll. I say, wow, what a wonderful title. Uh, and then you know what happened, which was amazing? I watched a movie that had nothing to do with my book. Because, look, when you're a writer and your book gets adapted, uh, which is, I don't know, kind of in the way the Spaniards adapted Mexico.
4: <laughs> when your book gets
12: adapted, you're always, you're terrified. I thought I was going to be sitting there tearing my hair out like Stephen King watching The Shining, watching your characters get mutilated, your story get eviscerated. You know what? They didn't destroy my book.
4: They ignored it. <laughs>
12: I also got to watch the greatest example of middle aged housewife pornography ever made. Alright, and this is great because what they did marketing wise, and this is very important Brad Pitt is a genius, and I will give him credit for this. See, what they do a lot of times with aging stars is they keep trying to skew younger and younger with younger little teeny boppers. That only makes them look older and creepy. Okay? No, what they did was Brad was like, look, I made a ton of female fans in the 90s, okay? And you, if there's any female here in your 40s mind, you remember, you remember Legends of the Fall where he it tips his hat, the little sunlight comes off? I, I took a date to that movie. <laughs> <laughs>
4: that
12: didn't work out so much. You remind me of the Aiden Quinn character. Thank you. <laughs> but what he said was, those fans have now grown up, all right? They've gotten married, they have kids. Their priorities are different. So instead of making me like the bad boy, Make me the hot husband, which they did. Because the truth is, if you want to get a middle-aged housewife excited, you don't have Brad Pitt from, you know, Felna Louise. You have Brad Pitt, make a pancakes. <laughs> good morning, dear. I'm just making breakfast for our lovely children? <laughs> uh, you're going to your very high-powered job, that's
4: good. <laughs> I had a high-powered job that I gave up for you because I love you. <laughs> Why did I think of that? I mean,
12: I saw, there's a scene, I don't know if you see the movie, there's a scene that I literally turned to my wife and said, did you write this part? Where they say, you have to go around the world and save the world for your family. But you have to call your
11: wife every day.
4: Wow. So the truth
12: is, I have my book, they have their movie, uh, they made a bajillion dollars on it. It didn't even go to China. Unbelievable. Like, the ne- they're they making a next one,
13: believe me. You know, but the battle for more money. And if that <laughs> goes to China, wow.
12: Because uh, let me tell you, the Chinese, and this is a true story, the Chinese actually only accept 12 movies a year from the United States. Hmm. So that's why a lot of the big blockbuster movies are kissing their ass so much now. Like re- yes, I know. So much for human rights. Um, you saw new Transformers where they're fighting on the Great Wall? Oh, wait till Transformers Five:
4: Optimus Prime versus Tibet. <laughs> <laughs> there's probably be a scene where like Megatron transforms into a micro blogger. <laughs> I want free speech. You won't get away with that. <laughs> Movie
12: done. Good for them. Whatever.
0: Another highlight for me from this uh, past year, San Diego Comic-Con, was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 30th Anniversary panel. This panel had a lot of really cool people on it. What you're going to hear from mostly on this clip um, include uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles co-creator Kevin Eastman. You're also going to hear from uh, Carl Aragonian. Uh, He is from Playmates Toys. Um, The full panel also includes a wide variety of other individuals, including Townsend Coleman, who's the voice of Michelangelo in the original Ninja Turtles, dude. Uh, Lloyd Goldfein, who worked on the four kids, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, as well as a bunch of other individuals, including Ernie Reyes Jr., um, who's Kino in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, and lots of other cool folks. This Clip, it gives you a little bit of history about how the Ninja Turtles uh, came into existence. Again, check out the full panel to hear more about the original cartoon as well as the, uh, the films and uh, the rebooted cartoon and the comics. Noticeably absent from this panel was any mention of the new movie. As many of you know, there's a little bit of controversy about the new Michael Bay produced movie. They didn't really mention it at all, which is a little curious. Um, but take make of that what you will. Here we go, Ninja Turtles' thirtieth anniversary. So let's
14: let's take it back to the beginning. And obviously, one guy in panel was here from the start, and that's Kevin. And can you take us back to
15: November 1983 when, uh, when this whole thing kicked off? Well, much to everybody's disbelief, there was no alcohol involved in the <laughs> the turtles. No, uh, um, I was a starving artist. I was working in a lobster restaurant. In saw this little magazine full of cartoons um, and it was in the next town over. And so I went over there to try to sell some line cartoons and they said, well, we don't really do that kind of stuff anymore, but you should really meet this guy, Peter Laird. He draws the same weird stuff you do. <laughs> and so uh, I wrote Peter a letter uh, back in those days, no cell phones, no faxes, anything. Um, wrote Peter a letter and he wrote me back. I just said, hey, we'd love to get together. I don't know anybody in the area and I'm a big comic geek and I uh, love to talk about comics and I draw a little bit. Um, walked into his little apartment, probably about as big as a stage, um, in Northampton, Massachusetts, and on the wall was a Jack Kirby original, and I grew up eating, sleeping, breathing Jack Kirby. That's all I wanted to do when I was a kid was to become Jack Kirby and write and draw my own stories. And I just about passed out. Um, so Peter and I hit it off, and our you know, kind of love of Jack Kirby was the thing that really spawned it, um, of many things. And so we worked on a couple short stories together right away, and I went back to cooking lobsters. And later that year, he ended up moving up to New Hampshire, which is about 20 minutes from where I was in Maine. And he had a room available in This house, was, him and his wife was uh, renting. And he said, when you get done killing lobsters for the summer, <laughs> why don't you come down and we'll form a studio. We'll see if we can team up and sell our, our work together. And we'll call it Mirage Studios um, is the name we selected because it really was a mirage. It was I of watching what I thought was some of the worst TV shows, like The A-Team and TJ Hooker and stuff. So <laughs> I thought it was my job to annoy him as much as possible when he was watching his favorite shows. So when I did this uh, sketch of a turtle standing upright. He had nunchucks wrapped on his arms. He had a mask on. And I kind of tossed it on his desk and said, This is the next big thing. Ha ha ha. It's a Ninja Turtle. And of course he laughed. He thought it was really funny. And studio studio, one upmanship he did a drawing to top my drawing his drawing, so I said, well, if there's one, why not four? So I did this pencil sketch of four turtles, each having you know, holding different weapons, and I put this little kind of comic book ninja turtle block on the top. And I gave it to him, and he then inked it. And when he inked it, he added Teenage Mutant to the title, and we were just laughing ourselves silly. We said, this really is the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, we literally, we got up the next day, and as I love to say, we didn't have any distracting pain work going on. So he said, um, why don't we come up with a story that uh, tells how these characters got to be the teenage new Ninja Turtles? And that was um, uh, May of, I mean, it was uh, November of 1983. Um, the first issue came out in May of 1984, which, can you believe, is 30 years now? Um, I know. We <laughs> it was awesome. Peter and I did a sign recently up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, I was at a, a pre-comic book day for a store called Jetpack Comics. The guy that owns Jetpack Comics held the original comic convention in 1984 that we premiered at the book at, and so May 3rd we were sitting there signing books, going like, "Man, <laughs> this is just crazy." Thirty years later, and, and we're still doing this stuff, and uh, it's been such a fantastic journey. And uh, and that's that's basically how it started. We'll fill in some of the rest as we sort of go. And I'll on. mention one of the kids.
14: had to cancel at the last minute on point .5 because of other obligations at the convention. Uh, but he's the executive producer of the current Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon on Nickelodeon, which you're, you're all fans, right? Everybody? Absolutely love it. That's fantastic. When
15: I met, first time I met Ciro, I actually knew him before. He, he got the gig on the Turtles. I was a big fan of his work on so many of the cartoon shows he was doing. And as soon as he he invited me over and he said, "I just want to show you what we're doing and um, what I'd like to do." And so we walked into the studio, um, and uh, he had uh, all the original turtle comics, the original black and white was pinned up all over the walls. He had already this massive sketchbook of the things that he wanted to do, and you know, he told me about his father on the pizza parlor. And I have the absolute dream draw of a lifetime. I get to write and draw a turtle stories, and that's your fault again. Um, <laughs> but so many of you guys, I <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be mailing you all checks at the end of the show. Um, the, uh, um, uh, but much like Tom, and Tom's a really great story, mean he grew up as a fan of the turtles, and much like Cyril did, um, when he was putting together the new show, uh,
14: saw the turtles, and he thought, yeah, I could, I could do something with this. And uh, Kevin, can you talk a little bit about uh, Mark of upstairs licensing? I'm busy signing
15: some of Hold on. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> some people. <laughs> uh, no, in the, in the early days, um, we published the first issue with 6,000 copies, and um, um, and actually that summer, I went after we it was released in May, I went back to cooking lobsters. We never thought we'd sell one single copy of the first issue. Um, when it actually sold out, um, we sold 3,000 copies, and it was like, okay, now to go back to go back to the real world. So I went back to Cooking Lobsters, and then that fall, uh, Peter called me said, you know, we keep getting calls from distributors and comic stores wanting to know when you're going to put out the next issue. And we are like, well, we never thought we'd sell the first one, so we never thought of doing a second issue. <laughs> um, so we, we sort of plotted out a story and solicited for it through the direct market uh, system. And when we get the orders in, in January of 1980, it was uh, 15,000 copies. And Pete called me really excitedly on the phone and said, hey, you know what? If we do six of these a year, we'll make about $2,000 each pre-tax per issue. We can pay our rent, eat all the macaroni and cheese we want, and draw our comic books for a living. <laughs> so uh, that was really the dream came true then. Um, we became you know, really fat, eating a lot of macaroni and cheese. <laughs> true, comic books all the time. No, but... Uh, Every issue after that, the sales kept going up and up and up, and we're like, "Oh my god, this is this is amazing! Not only get to write, and draw, and create our own stories, it's it's it, they're really selling people, seem to be gravitating to them." Along with that success comes um, agents and people from Hollywood, um, and the first bunch of them that called us, we we were fairly disgusted by, and just said no. And we were very cocky, um, I guess, because we were making money and we were happy. And we were drawing comic books. So we never thought it would be anything other than. Um, until one day we met Mark Friedman. Um, it was so funny, he called us and he said, I, uh, I think this going to be, be much more than just a comic book. Let me talk to you about it. We said, look, if you want to drive up from New York, we'll listen to what you have to say, and, and, and that'll be that. Um, we figured we'd to sort of send them off like we did the others. So, Peter and I had just gotten our first office, so it wasn't so much a, a mirage anymore. We had gotten this really dumpy little office, and we were literally repainting it. and uh, Covered in paint, we hear a knock on the door, and we opened the door, and there's this guy in like an $800 suit, you know, perfect hair, expensive briefcase, and he does one of those freeze frame things. He opens, he's like, East Mid-Laird? And I'm like, yeah, go on in. Um, so we started with this deal. He said, you know, five year deal. It's going to be this, it's going to be this. I, I'll control all the rights. And we're like, no, 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 no. Um, so we he got off his New York sort of pitch thing, and we went and had a cup of coffee. And he said, look, I really, really sincerely think. I said, well, we'll give you 30 days. If you can come back to us with anything interesting in 30 days, we'll give you another 30 days, and so on and so on. Um, and Mark just went out and nailed it. He put together you know, uh, us with Playmates toys and uh, more probably Wolf at that time, Fred Wolf Animation. He literally put together the right pieces with the right partners. it
5: Unfortunately, I wasn't with Playmates during the original launch, but I've heard a lot about it. And, um, you know, like Kevin said, Mark Friedman played a big part in pitching Playmates toys on the Ninja Turtles. And um, my understanding is that they actually tried to pitch it to the Mattel and Hasbros of the world, and thank God they passed on it. <laughs> and uh, our chairman at the time, Thomas Chan, had the foresight to you know, really explain. the uh, first five
15: Sachs was this awesome guy. That he looked like you imagine the penguin from the old Batman series. If you took away the tuxedo, that was Jerry Sachs. He was a really funny guy, but he was awesome and really smart. Um, it, it's funny, it just reminded me of a couple of highlights. I remember when we were first working with Carl Aronian developing the toys and the look. Um, you know, it was, I think, for Carl and I, it was like 50 pounds ago or 60 pounds ago. You're so young, you see some of those little pictures. But it was so great because the interaction was, was really wonderful and like things like um they said, Well, how can you tell the turtles apart? And Peter and I were like, Duh, the weapons, dude. you know, come on. And he goes, uh it, he said, No, no, we have to come up with a couple of things that we can sort of help differentiate them a little bit between the toy line and you know, different characters and make them more individualist toys. And so, you know, a lot of people wonder where the different colored bandanas come from. That was Pete's idea. Pete said, Well, why don't we give them different colored bandanas? You know, blue for Leo, Regal, leader. You know, Raphael, red, sort of rage. Michelangelo, comedic, funny. Justine, you know, fitting in. Donatello, you know, the techno geeky. Um, you know, uses a bow staff, so it's a bit of a pacifist, a monk sort of thing. And I remember um, two things when we then worked with them on the on the um, two highlights of that 87, 88 year was um, we never believed the toys would actually come out, much like we thought we'd never sell the first issue. We never believed the the, the, the TV show would appear. We never but we worked very hard on them, and then it wasn't until um, uh, December of 1987 when the TV Guide came out. You remember the TV Guide? <laughs> 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 and we actually saw it listed in the program in the TV Guide, and we were like, oh my god, this is actually going to be on the air. Um, and, uh, and we watched it, it was a big hit, and they ordered more, and that gave the playmates the, the, the confidence that we have to go ahead with the toy line. So in June of 88, when the toys came out, Peter and I went down to – we had to go see him on the toy shelf. We wanted to see him in the toy store, and KB Toys was the, a was the big toy chain at the time. So we drove down to Springfield to the local KB store, and as we're walking down the, through the store down to the action figure aisle, uh, we were just about to the action figure aisle, and this woman, this mother, is dragging, dragging this young boy out of the action figure aisle, and she's saying, no, I'm not buying you one of those stupid Ninja Turtles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, no, what have we got? Uh, um,
15: but, but those are some some really awesome highlights um, of, of the early days when we did that stuff. And, and I was that boy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, to wait in line for a few hours to get into this one, but it was well worth the wait. This is Fight Club from page to screen and beyond. Uh, you're going to hear from author Chuck Palahniuk, the original uh, author behind Fight Club. Fight Club, as well as direct, da- director David Fincher, uh, known for Fight Club, Seven, The Social Network, and a bunch of other really awesome movies. Uh, this panel was moderated by Rick Keffel, from the agonycolumn.com, and this clip is going to give you the story behind the book, where the idea came from, as well as how the movie got ad- ad- um, adapted by David Fincher and the story behind um, his work with the studio on this. The rest of the panel really also describes what's happening with this project and how we're moving towards Fight Club Two which is going to be a comic um, that's going to be coming out pretty soon. So here we go.
11: Chuck, there was a very specific event that set this whole ball rolling with some very annoying music.
16: Except for the woman in the dry cleaner, cleaners, this Asian woman, and uh, she was the only one. She looked at me and she said, ah, what happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought, you know, if you looked bad enough, no one would ever ask you what happened. Mm-hmm. And that was the Genesis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You turn this verse into a short story just a little short story. So tell us a little bit
11: about crafting that short story and why you decided to write it down in the first place.
16: I was, I'm was. i always looking for a different way of structuring information. And especially if, if I can find a non-fiction structure for information. And so I wanted to use rules as a kind of uh, a touchstone so I could jump around temporally throughout a short story that always come back to a kind of chorus like in a song. And so I thought I'd Arbitrarily would come up with seven rules for a place where you could consensually engage in a fight. And they would allow me to to cut, like a film editor cuts, from one disparate thing to another without losing the reader. And that's, it was just an arbitrary little exercise I did one slow afternoon at work. And it created a little short story, and that became chapter six, and kind of the model.
11: Now, uh, you had to, once you had this short story, you had to bring it to somebody. Talk about uh, working with uh, Jerry Howard here, your editor, and, and how – because we all like to think that it's ivory tower time, but I don't
16: think that's quite exactly the case, is it? Or is it? You know, I'd like to defer at this point to Jerry because I'd like to see what it looked like when it landed on Jerry's desk by editor Jerry Howard. Um. Uh-huh.
17: Working at W.W. Gordon, uh, who probably sold a lot of your textbooks at a horribly inflated price. (laughs) And um, a very pretty conservative place, really. Um, And Chuck's agent had earlier sent me a novel, Invisible Monsters, uh, which sort (laughs) of. My uh, my employers were even more perplexed than I was, and, and I, w- I couldn't I couldn't get it get it across. Um, but uh, we kept in touch, Craig and I and we, we met at a pretty on writers conference. Um, you were wearing. Each other, and then one day, uh, Chuck sent me the story Fight Club, which was appearing in Story magazine, and and you said, "Should I continue with this?" And I just said, uh, "Yeah," <laughs> and it eventually became uh, a novel, um, which um, which which I thought was great and wonderful and really dangerous many, many ways, uh, but I, but I loved it, um, and I just got by, um, at, at uh, Ed Board, we have an Ed, Ed, Board, I just, I, I, I remember one of my colleagues said, well, you're good at this sort of thing, <laughs> which I, which I continue to take as a compliment, and, um, and I, I just, I just this is something I haven't seen before. We need we need to try to do it. And, and uh, we signed it up for, I guess, what do you would call modest so.
11: And now this thing is 18 years old. It's old enough to go out and fight a war. <laughs> but I can't drink. I can't drink, yeah. <laughs> Chuck, once you had this book, uh, talk about... Uh, How, I mean, did it do well for you? I mean, did it change your life overnight once it was out?
16: It sold fewer than 5,000 copies in hardcover. (laughs) And the rest of the hardcover sat and brought it in the warehouse until 1999, Mm -hmm. when it was about to go to the pulper, and someone said, uh, you know, there's a movie coming out. And so they saved the last 5,000 copies. And it really, it was the story that wouldn't sell, but it wouldn't die. And the paperback did moderately well. And then the movie, David. Yeah.
11: Said, I can't read a book tonight. I got shit I gotta do. <laughs> and he said, uh, "No, you gotta read it because um, you're gonna want to do it. And if you don't read it tonight, we can't put a bid in tomorrow. With 20th Century Fox we will buy it, and then you'll have to go work with 20th Century Fox again." <laughs> so I said, "Send it over." <laughs> and I um, I read it, and I could not stop laughing. And that's probably a window into me that's best left. <laughs> uh, so I, I thought it was one of the funniest things I ever read, and I also felt that it was the kind of coming of age. Um, I mean, it was a coming of age. It was it was talking about maturity and a kind of male confusion about how we could coexist with the life that had been left to us by our fathers. And I also thought it was a big movie, not a small movie. And so the next day I called Josh and I said, let's buy it. And he says, too late. Uh, Fox bought it. And now you have to go meet with Laura Ziskin. So I went and I sat with Laura Ziskin, who was running Fox 2000, which was an adjunct of, adjunct of Big Fox. And they were supposed to do this kind of wild, you know, outsider. They weren't supposed to be doing the big corporate movies. And, and we agreed on what the movie sort of was and the size of the movie. And she said, uh, I'd like you to meet with me some writers. And we agreed on Jim Wools to to write the first draft of the script, and he went away, and 14 months later, no, I'm sorry, 6 months later he came back with a script that had no voiceover. And I said, Jim, with all due respect what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) And he said uh, he had talked to the studio and he had talked to a producer who was working on the film at that time and they had all agreed that a voiceover was a crutch. Couldn't have a voiceover. I said, if this movie doesn't have a voiceover, it's not funny. And we fired the producer and (laughs) he went back to work for eight more months. And uh, 14 months later, we had a draft and we did a. I was slightly dishonest in saying that I thought we could make the movie for 22, 23 million. And we did a budget and we storyboarded the entire film. And we, we had the draft, which was about 140 pages. We had about 300 pages storyboards. We had about a 60 page budget. And I took Lord Ziskin and Bill Mechanic, who was running Big Fox, out to dinner. And I took this whole stack of stuff. I dropped it on the table in front of them before we had an appetizer. <laughs> and I said, I was wrong. It's $65 million. <laughs> Brad Pitt wants to do it. Edward Norton wants to do it. And I'll do it, but you have 72 hours to make it be on. <laughs> <laughs> and 72 hours later, they said, let's do it. So that's how we started the movie. <laughs>
0: And last but not least, I wanted to share with you a clip from uh, the panel series that I've created with my colleague, Dr. Andrea Lettamenti, The Psychology of Star Trek vs. Star Wars Episode 4. Now, this is all of Star Trek vs. Star Wars, not just Star Trek vs. Star Wars Episode 4. Uh, this is the fourth time we're doing this, and on this panel, we were lucky enough to be joined by actor Sam Whitwer. Uh, you might know him as the voice of Darth Maul from Star Wars Clone Wars. He was also in being, hu- being Human, um, as well as Battlestar Galactica. And uh, producer Rod Roddenberry, who needs no introduction. Not only is he the son of Star Trek's creator, Gene Roddenberry, but he also created the Star- uh, the Trek Nation documentary, and he's the CEO of Roddenberry Entertainment. So uh, this panel was moderated by g- uh, my good friend, Brian Ward of Shout Factory, and uh, we dive into a lot of different topics uh, on this panel. The, uh, the larger theme was what does it take to achieve your full potential and what happens if you fail to achieve it. What you're going to hear about in this segment is um, looking at the characters of Darth Maul and Khan and what happens to them when they fail to achieve their goals, their evil, diabolical goals, but fail to achieve their goals nonetheless. Enjoy!
7: realizing what's a
4: <laughs> it really um,
18: let's talk about these two franchises and what it means to you know, psychologically uh,
2: be put into the position of merely realizing those goals and then to have it taken away. We'll start with Team Track. Um,
0: this question is pretty awesome. And, uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying. Um, my. My favorite part about Phantom Menace is Darth Maul. I think he was such a cool character. And then the scene brought back in the Clone Wars was so exciting. And then we too on the Star Trek side have Khan and he was brought back too, but we don't have to talk about that. What we're talking about <laughs> is what happens when you're you have a goal. You know, both of these individuals were bred for one purpose. And Darth Maul maybe wasn't bred, but from an early age, you know, without really much choice, he was raised to be this Darth Sith assassin. Uh, Khan was really engineered through eugenics to become this superhuman, and in Spacey, they say, he was the best of them. He was the best superhuman. For both of these individuals, they had a singular purpose. Khan wanted to rule the world to, you know, be a good ruler and all that. And He didn't really do a good job, sort of led to World War III. Um, but then Darth Maul was bred for this one purpose of killing Jedi, and as Brian so eloquently said, he was cut in half. Both of these characters become consumed with one thing, and that's revenge. It, they are absolutely consumed with revenge. Khan wants it against Kirk, Maul wants it against Obi Wan, and we see that in Clone Wars. The, the psychology here, you know, it, it comes down to that line I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you, and I want to go on hurting you. Revenge is all about having this wound and hoping that if you get back at that person, it's going to somehow fix the wound. And what we know about the psychology here is, at first, revenge feels good. You know, revenge is a dish best served cold with a little bit of sugar on it, because it actually feels good in the moment. But what the research has shown is the more you're stuck on revenge if you're ruminating on these thoughts, that pain, that wound, the rumination about how angry you are at Obi-Wan, and how angry you are at Kirk, it just festers. So compare this against Luke and Kirk. Now, Kirk lost his son to Klingons. Those Klingon bastards, they killed my son. I'm never going to... I don't know what he says next. Forgive him. <laughs> my, something. Spock walks in and Spock's like, what are you talking about? Um, but Kirk, throughout Undiscovered Country, is going through this process of forgiveness and trying to find empathy for the Klingons. And then you have Luke, who had his hand cut off by, by Vader, and the Emperor is saying, you know, give in to the dark side, and he doesn't. Both those characters are able to find forgiveness. Both those characters are able to develop empathy. They're not saying it's okay that these things were happened, but they are able to find a way to move on. These characters are not.
13: To kill you and hurt you. The whole thing would come. And so we have, when we first meet him, he's crazy. But then he gets his stuff back together, and all he wants to do is beat up Obi-Wan and, and kill him real quick. And he wins. He beats Obi-Wan, and, but then lets him go because he realizes, I don't feel any better. I don't feel any better. Uh, maybe the re- maybe it wasn't big enough. Maybe the revenge needs to be larger, bigger. So he starts raising an army, doing all these things, figuring out who Obi-Wan cares about, and then eventually finds Satine. No spoiler alert there, I'm just telling that, but he ends up hurting Obi-Wan in a very major way. Obi-Wan demonstrates his superiority by not seeking revenge, which is disappointing to Darth Maul, but we never get to that point, because then suddenly we get to Darth Sidious, and there's a whole other revenge plot that happens there. It's this endless cycle. Something, a recurring revenge cycle for Khan as well, because it's a wound that never ever heals. The only way that you can heal it is by forgiving your enemy, by by offering a compassionate response, by offering mercy. And there was no mistake that one of the first things we ever heard Darth Maul say in that garbage pit, he's mumbling to himself about how mercy is a lie. And the last thing we hear Darth Maul say is he's begging Darth Sidious for mercy. So thank you, Star Trek, thank you, Grant. Thank you everyone for <laughs> feeding that response. I suck at this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, remember about the rule of two, it's it's usually, you know, broken. There's usually a third party in the rule of two. So I'm I'm okay with that. <laughs> betraying I my own mind.
0: The Sith should really drop that rule of two. It hasn't really worked out too well for you all.
18: <laughs> I, I gotta say I come at this from a slightly different uh, point of view and it's really you know there's there's a lot of respect for khan um mm-hmm. you know in, in space c they have it even in the latest movie they kind of show it there's 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 a lot of depth of the character and i didn't know i don't know much about dark maul except from the movie so you actually learned quite a bit from you just just now but you know khan i i, I guess i have a respect for him he loves his family. He loves those those seventy two other people. That's his family. So he has compassion. He has a heart. His views are a little screwed up, um, but you know, I, I really, really find him to be a more intriguing character to me. Whereas I think Maul was more one dimensional. But I know more about Khan than I do Darth so. Maul. Um, but that's that's just where I come from on this. Sometimes you can look at someone who has sort of the wrong point of view. But you can still understand them, and you can still appreciate where they're coming from. On it. So, and that's that's where I live with with Yeah, you know,
13: I think one of the primary differences between Star Trek and Star Wars is Star Wars paints in more primary colors, and, and and it's it's louder and it's bigger generally. Whereas Star Trek likes to get really nuanced in very specific ways. That's why I, I love
18: both. Of them. And it's hard to do that with theatrical versus television. Well, exactly yeah. right.
13: It, that's absolutely true. Which you know it's it's nice to see that they actually you know in those six movies did have a lot of success with that nuance especially with mm-hmm. um but it's it's uh it's interesting you know like Star Wars performances they don't work if you do them subtly they just don't Star Wars is better when it's bigger and faster and operatic and giant Star Trek is actually I think better when it's considered you have these subtle moments with the characters mm-hmm. Kirk and Spock and Bones in his quarters talking a problem of. An interesting thing.
18: It makes me want to know more about Darth Maul. I want to sit around a coffee table with him, or I want some characters to surround Lou, <laughs> we'll get a couple around, and they'll just talk philosophy. See, right? Maul to talk it out a little bit. Ooh, that'd be good. All right, who would win a fight? Khan or Darth Maul? All right, your hand went up. I, there was no right answer again.
0: <laughs> ah! I don't think Khan would win against Maul. I, now I, I'm gonna I, I, go, I'm gonna give an assist to Dr. Letamendi over there. there go. Here, go, oh go. Right, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> here, here, I, I gotta say one thing, Brian. What beat Khan in TOS? A big pipe! Come on! No no no! no, no Maul's got no, no, this no, lightsaber! No
13: no no, not just a pipe, my friend. I saw it first. Per- at one point, take both of his fists and combine it into one fist. That several times.
0: That—that's something you learn in Starfleet Academy. That's it's, what I saw. It's the Starfleet Look, fist bump.
13: You ever seen this? Guess what you guys watch UFC. One fist can do a lot of damage. This—it like it square square root of us. This is what happens.
4: There's a lot of going on here.
18: You fly around the planet Brian
0: come so we're gonna wrap up this bonus episode with a special interview with uh, two of my very good friends Alex and Justin um, now these are two people I've known for a long time and they're two very nerdy geeky friends Alex was my first ever um, openly tricky friend uh we both met and bonded over star trek and we used to have lots of screenings of star trek enterprise when we uh went to ucla together and then justin buchanan um is alex's husband and um he works uh he does a lot of cool stuff but what I think what's really cool about him is he's a pretty big music nerd. He's in an awesome band called The Silent Company. You guys should check them out at silentcompany.com. And we, uh, the full interview talks about nerdery and geekery in general and what does that mean in geek culture. Um, but this clip is really about what is it like to be a local San Diegan um, and having the largest fan gathering uh, occur in your backyard. I hope you enjoy the interview. So, as to San Diegans mm-hmm. who had experience and exposure to what San Diego Comic Con used to be, like what happens to your city during this weekend as as locals? Like, what is the experience of San Diego Comic Con for two people who live in San Diego and are two big geeks and two big nerds, but don't go there? Like, what is that like?
19: I mean, it definitely gets more crowded, uh, and I told you earlier. Lots that are normally $7 turn into $30 lots, and that's pretty far away. So, that was where we walked to our car.
0: Yeah, that was a pretty big walk.
19: That was that area. So, $30 lots in that area.
0: And that's pretty far from the convention center. Right. So, as
19: you get closer, they're, I think, averaging out at, like, $40 a lot.
0: Which is not the typical. I
19: mean, when there's a baseball game, the lots will be $20, and that's
4: expensive.
0: Oh, wow.
19: Yeah. So So, I mean it it's downtown is denser so maybe 10 bucks a lot 15 bucks sure so yeah it's strange going about your day to day like i i work downtown yeah we both uh do. so like today we had a big meeting at work and all these people were coming from off site and people were running late cuz there's traffic and people couldn't find parking so they're feeding the meter and yeah. so things like that are a little bit strange
0: So, and I asked you guys to go to, uh, if you could take me to a really nice, uh, good, local Mexican, and we went, and then Alex, you kind of whispered to me, you're like... (laughs) Yeah, th- this is a smaller burrito than it usually is. Yeah. surprised How small that burrito is. <laughs> I will
20: we're too. used to gi- You normally go... you get a baby are like size. Gigantic. Yeah, it's like a small a baby, baby size burrito.
0: So so that's like a burrito. That's a yeah. So maybe some she- San Diego Comic Con shenanigans were at play well, with our burritos. Yeah, maybe. Well, I don't
19: know. I mean, it might just be that because like that place is usually not that busy. Yeah. So it might just be they're just trying to. To stretch out their resources, yeah, yeah. or make yeah. a little extra. Yeah, Maybe. people people from out of town they don't know that their their burritos should be baby sized. And... Sure, they should be like
20: roughly the size of your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> it be. In San Diego,
20: right? Like, in San Diego. it doesn't.
0: I usually do the stack test, which is um, can you if you turned it vertically? We're if you like, haven't stand. noticed too, we're burrito nerds. Yeah. Also, yeah, apparently, apparently. <laughs> So, the stack test. I don't the know. stack test. You take your burrito and you stack, You just put place it vertically. Yeah, it should stand on. Yes, its own. absolutely. It should not fall yeah. and it should not uh, collapse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these burritos would not have. They would not. Yeah, they, they would not have, have passed have the, They were very yeah. good. I they think. Were still
20: I think, and that's the thing too. I, of all the, you know, most locals. There's a million little like hole in the wall burrito places that's like just take out burrito places and most locals just go to anywhere then they're good and they're wherever's gigantic close. yeah wherever's right. close and they're all basically that that place that place does a little bit better food and that's why we went but yeah
19: and they're open later
20: and they're open later and they definitely do i thought the burrito was very good oh it's still i'm it
0: still savoring good, it but it, it was still. not big enough no no
4: it was <laughs> like
20: how big was it how big it was it's like it was like the size of our hand, right? It was like hand size. That's yeah. how big it is. Yeah, yeah. It should. Which be could like work for a
0: quesadilla. Size. A quesadilla could sure. be hand size, but not a burrito. This is nerdy. Did, this you, is did pretty you see nerdy.
19: that they had Comic Con? Um, they
0: had Comic deals. They had sure? Comic Con deals. They had they had a, um, a Batman up. They had a Mario Brothers up. This is so. This is one thing I've noticed. Mm-hmm. This is only my second time here at San Diego Comic Con, but it feels like. Parts of the city, at least this like downtown area, they kind of embrace it. Now, I think they like it. No, yeah. I mean, yeah. it
19: brings a lot, It does bring a lot of business in. I mean, it's it's probably the biggest event in San Diego, at, at least at the convention center.
20: Well, they're saying, I mean, yeah, they're. It's certainly one. Yeah, it's certainly one of the biggest events. It's a huge. I mean, I know it's a huge tourist thing too, so it's a big like influx of money for the thing. And I think all the, I mean, all the downtown businesses are definitely thinking that they're gonna like get a little extra revenue and all that stuff. And I think everyone most everyone I think is encouraging and excited about it. I don't re I mean everybody deals with everybody deals with the like small annoyances of like parking being a little more expensive yep. or harder to find or there's people, but I don't think I know getting anybody. to work
0: later traffic Yeah, but
20: I don't I don't I don't know that I know anybody that is actually like begrudging the thing. I think
1: it's actually
19: really good for San Diego in terms yeah. of San Diego's culture yeah. cuz you know, we're kind of a laid-back city yeah. and I think we definitely are not at the same level as some other urban areas when it comes to like the art scene. Uh, or you know, even the music scene. It, I, that's you know, absolutely no true. offense to to Justin, I'm but it's definitely it. like it's yeah. more of like the surf culture. So we definitely get a lot yeah. more like punk and surf bands, and and like I said, the art scene is. Sorry, that was yeah. That was a thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and and that's I'm a total I'm I'm an admitted art snob. Uh,
4: but please,
0: please, please. more nerdy, art nerd. But art nerd. Get <laughs> <Art nerd. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> a tailor to um, your response. This is the for fantastic right, right. nerd hour, right. Alex. So, <laughs>
19: but I think that something that like Comic Con kind of fits perfectly into that. You mm. know what I mean? Like it's kind of fun. It doesn't take itself too seriously. Like it fits really well into that laid back vibe. Yeah, and it's definitely more youthful. And I don't know. I think that, I think there's something really neat about it, and that. Comic-Con kind of found exactly the right city where it should
0: be. Do you think that's where it took off? Because I'm looking, so, you know, um, I live in New York and I go to New York Comic-Con. It's a different experience. It's large, but no one single event can take over New York City. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. when people leave the convention center, first off, there's no gas lamp to pour into. It's way West Manhattan and it's like just emptiness out there. And so people are trying to go out to other places, but there's there's no restaurants or establishments embracing them. And then I have a a, a friend who was wearing this Doctor Who cosplay, which, you know, you just look like a fancy British person, yeah. right? <laughs> and they were accosted depends by some on, people. Depends on
20: which Doctor you are. Depends Not on which true. Doctor.
0: I think they were uh, the Tenth Doctor. Okay. So, which is pretty, like, you you look like a hipster, basically. Yeah. Right. right. So, um and they were made fun of at this bar. So there's definitely in that New York Comic Con, there isn't that whole sense of it taking over a city, or the sense of a city embracing it. New York's kind of like whatever. Yeah.
20: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a that's a historically, I think that's a pretty common New York attitude attitude and thing to deal with. I mean, not that, and I think, I mean, I think it has to do with a lot. Like you're saying, like nothing is big enough to take over New York. So, like. So and who gives a and shit?
19: San Diego is also a little more straight laced. Yeah. So we don't have like the same everyday uh, weirdness yeah. as other some other bigger yeah. cities have. Yeah. Um. So I think that's also why, yeah, so when it comes why they the kind town, of are into it. I yeah. mean, like, and especially downtown, I think it's cool. Uh, it, That's the most concentrated area, but San Diego's pretty spread out. So it's really easy to see around there when something new comes in. um, You really notice the difference. But I I I think it's cool.
20: And I think, too, there's what I – I mean, the thing that I always talk about and what I love about this city so much is how small the city really is, how small downtown San Diego really is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hardly a mile – by a mile, like the cityscape, the downtown, like urban area, it's hardly like a square mile. So, that's the other thing, too, is like something like Comic Con can take over the city, yeah, like it kind of can. There, you know, yeah. exactly right. We're saying like the convention center is right next to Gasland.
0: Oh my gosh, it it's such like, a nicely well laid out, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah. yeah,
20: for this kind of thing, it really yeah. is. If you're doing anything, I mean, that's the thing, I mean. And I think that there's not a lot of other things that happen in the city, so it might just be by default that like Comic Con becomes the thing that you know becomes what the city's known for, what San Diego's sort of known for in a
19: way. We just had like Pride was the weekend before, Mm -hmm. and you feel it. Like you feel it when something is going on, and like you see. Like all the all the businesses had their flags out, and I think that's a small I town.
20: I think that's a like small town mentality that San Diego has that other big cities don't. Yeah, well, that's you, part of it too. It. I think, and, and you wouldn't get exactly.
0: this, and you wouldn't get this in L.A. L.A. No. has too a convention big. center, but it's too big, too spread out. And, the,
20: and that's the thing too is like, yeah, L.A. is spread out. That's the thing about L.A. Really, is that nothing ever seems connected enough. Yeah, to like really, and actually, and we Alex and I. Differ our opinions in some ways about LA, but that's the thing that I always feel like is LA's too spread out. You can't, you can't sort of.
19: Well, which is funny because I think that San Diego is actually very similar to LA in the layout.
0: It is, but your downtown is it's it's lively. There's actually stuff to do. Whereas LA downtown, at least when I lived oh, there,
19: LA changing.
0: It is changing. It is changing. But I think this is—I think you guys are definitely on onto something here. It seems like it's a right mixture of things that came together mm-hmm. that allowed this convention to flourish. That it wouldn't have another city. I'm also thinking about the weather here. Oh. Well, um, that and that's definitely yeah. You can't
4: beat that.
0: Yeah, it makes a huge difference for cosplay. Actually, mm-hmm. like a lot, a lot. Of, <laughs> A lot of what what people put together for their is, cosplay is weather appropriate. It, well, in, <laughs> well, that's on, on the one hand. There's that, right? And on the other hand, if you're as like a, 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 a Guillermo del Toro Pacific Rim mm-hmm. like monster, that is hot and heavy under all of that. Stuff. Right, and
20: it's not so,
19: humid here. It's not too. Yeah. Wait,
20: true. do you know a lot about the whole the Pacific Rim thing? We might have to. When we so? turn this
0: off. We're gonna have to turn to
20: Pacific Rim. Okay, we can. We can get...
4: Should we? Should we wait for
20: later? I can we'll edit. wait for later. I can edit. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Evangelion, right? Huh? Do you know? Okay, then We'll talk about it later. Okay. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, cool. Um, so it sounds like you guys are both like there, there are some annoyances. However, I'm, I'm sensing a sense of of pride that this this yeah. thing that is really the pinnacle right now of geek culture is here in your backyard. Well, we like geeks. We like nerds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, takes one to know one. Yeah, it right. does. <laughs> well, cool guys. We'll have to get some more burritos. Yeah, we uh, we ones. will. Yeah, I mean they we'll might be not big. be as good, we'll but have they'll to be go bigger. Outside of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, as Godzilla said, "Go bigger, go home." When Godzilla never go- said <laughs> that. <laughs> <Because> Godzilla never said
19: that. I don't know what so, I, he he said said so. I would have been like. oh, Did Godzilla
0: say that? <laughs> Alex doesn't remember. Alex is like nodding like, yeah, yeah. Just as like shaking his nose. What are you talking about,
20: man? It should have been like, oh yeah, it's Godzilla. Yeah.
0: Alright, on that note... Alrighty, nerdlings, that is all for San Diego Comic-Con 2014. We hope you enjoyed the Super Fantastic Nerd Hour coverage. We're going to be back next time with a look at Guardians of the Galaxy, a movie I've been waiting for for a long time. And our next con coverage will be New York Comic-Con in early October. Until then, live long and prosper.